Welcome to the Visegrad Insight podcast on Central Europe from Central Europe. Um, my name is Stephen Erlanger. I am based in Brussels as the chief European diplomatic correspondent for the New York Times. Um, I've spent a lot of my life overseas, um, including in uh, Central Europe. I covered Solidarność in 81. I was in Poland during, during martial law. Uh, my first visit to Germany was to Hauptstadt der, der DDR. Ever before I ever went west, I've been based in Moscow, and I am a big fan of Visegrad Insight, and I'm very pleased to be part of this podcast. It's Thursday, 24th of June, 2021, and we're in the Visegrad Insight office together with Marysia Chupka. My name is Wojciech Przybylski, and we're discussing pressing issues of the week from the perspective of Central Europe. So, Marisha, which one would you point out? So, this week, uh, Financial Times reports that uh, Merkel and Macron uh, want to restart EU-Russia summits with Putin and um, other EU countries. And I wanted to ask you about that, Wojtek, because uh, this seems like a really big and to some controversial news. Yes, indeed, uh, that uh, was met with a lot of skepticism, especially in Central Europe. Uh, not only the, the very idea of resetting relations and starting back regular leaders' summits between EU and Russia, but also the way it was introduced just ahead of the Council meeting today. Uh, today afternoon, uh, we have a meeting of the EU Council. We'll see how this goes. Uh, this will be, of course, after this podcast is released. Uh, but uh, you can expect uh, resistance to the idea from Central European countries, uh, including the resistance that is on the procedural uh, element. The, the, the proposal of, of, of phrasing the conclusions of the summit, which was leaked to the Financial Times, uh, is about, you know, came as a surprise uh, and, uh, and the partners were not aware, aware I said, to, 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 to this initiative. And it builds on, I think, to a large extent, on the right, on the wrong interpretation of what Biden-Putin summit was. We'll hear in a moment from Stephen Erlanger, his assessment of the summit. But I don't think the meeting with Putin was all about reset. It was setting, you know, going for stability. I'm not really sure that EU is the actor now to, uh, to play the similar role as the US, although the ambitions are there. So what will Central European states uh, say in response to um, the initiative put forward by uh, Germany and France? Well, for one thing, that they will, they will say that we have a different perspective, nothing above our heads. And of course, there is EU Council. But again, we come back to the issue of procedure, of, of how things were introduced. We remember how the rest of Europe protested against the initiative put forward solely by Poland vis-a-vis -vis Trump administration with the Ford Trump. Everybody was saying that this is undermining the unity within NATO if, you know, if things are handled this way. In a similar, uh, in a similar way, although differences are still there, uh, 
this proposal comes as a, as a surprise to Central European countries, and there are actually more differences arising between Central Europe and, uh, well, let's say US also, uh, and the big, uh, big players in the EU. One of them arose after G7 summit, and it's about the common uh, global taxation. I think there are, there are lots of differences on that, don't you think? Uh, yes, definitely. Um, Central European states, especially Poland and Hungary, reported uh, or um, rather declared that they were not too into the idea of global corporate tax. And um, why is that? What's so, what's so wrong with it for them? It's quite interesting, no, because we have heard such uh, vocal support for the idea overall from the Polish prime minister a couple of uh, times already on the international forum before, but these were put forward when the initiative wouldn't see that it's taking off the ground. And now we see, we, we just had this week um, on, on Tuesday meeting of the finance ministers of the Visegrad group, part of the Polish presidency that ends with the end of this month, a yearly presidency that Poland held in the Visegrad group, is now um, having a, one of the last punches, uh, perhaps that will be uh, taken over to the Hungarian presidency, about how to coordinate on you know, Central European position on this global taxation. G7 has a proposal, 15% taxation, but uh, many corporate taxes in Central Europe are much lower. Hungary, uh, if I'm not mistaken, this is at five or, or nine, you know, general nine. And then Poland may have it at some instances when when the investor is reinvesting in a country, to the, the tax rate could be as low as five. And naturally, the countries of Central Europe are still building up their potential very much based on the foreign uh, development um, uh, funds, uh, investments that, that come here to the region partly because you know of great attractiveness growth, but also because of um, some preferences they get at the start, incentives to, to invest here. And that will be a hard nut to crack, uh, both for Central Europeans, but also on the, on the broader level of the EU, while there are appetites for having some sort of taxation on, on global corporate uh, uh, companies that simply avoid taxation. At the same time, there are individual interests of particular countries that, that want to keep the investment in their country and they will be worried with, with whether this investment will, will go on should they be pressed to increase the tax. That indeed is a very interesting uh, dynamics that you're describing here between the forces of global capitalism and uh, local development uh, in Central Europe. And when speaking of the economy, uh, there were some news this week uh, in Poland, uh, actually, of the Supreme Audit Office uh, criticizing really harshly uh, the Polish recovery budget. Mm -hmm. Not only recovery budget, but I think the, the, the country's budget, the, the state budget. Uh, so the key, uh, the key document that states, the, you know, the, basically the business plan of, of the country and uh, also summarizes the state of, of public finance, which seemed so very good on the paper and it's, it's like infinite potential to run uh, social programs and various big initiatives. 
But as we read in the report, and frankly, m many people highlighted that before, but the Supreme Audit Office has its weight in the structure of the uh, um, official politics in Poland. Mm, we see that the, the government has been using basically creative accountancy. Uh, the, the wording of the report from the Supreme Audit Office is highlighting that Poland has been uh, using so much of this creative accountancy that by now the state budget, the Polish budget, is no longer describing the state of affairs when it comes to public finance. And it's impossible to, to, uh, to judge which direction it is going. Is it going better? Is it going, you know, are we more indebted? Are we, um, are the finances sound and, and all the plans that we have are, are going to be met? Uh, it seems that things are out of hand and that might be a trouble for way longer than, than this government. Uh, the, the the trouble will come, of course, with uh, um, any economic turbulence. The budget and the method seems to be betting on the right side of things, on the good side of things. That you know, uh, let's close our eyes for now and let's let's imagine that prospects for the future. It's ambitious uh, policy, uh, definitely, but it's um, we've seen in the recent history of the last um, decade that it didn't it didn't help very much some of the countries that went into into a spiral should you know should there be a financial crisis on the horizon then we also have the continuation of the lgbtqi controversy uh, especially in hungary that we spoke of last in last week's podcast so uh, to just remind you Hungary introduced uh, or passed rather a le legislation that is basically a blow to LGBTQI community uh, under the pretext of child protection, child of protecting children from um, child abuse, sex abuse. Uh, and this week, 14 countries of the EU issued, issued a joint statement condemning um, Hungarian legislation. And uh, this this case will definitely... Uh, continue to be discussed uh, by the public so yeah and it also also brought a, a blow to the narrative that central europe has a different set of values when you know it comes to conservative family nucleus kind of traditional whatever tradition is um, versus the progressive open-ended um, family structure in in the in the west because uh, we we've seen that the baltic countries well, you couldn't say, you know, that they are not part of the past legacy Eastern Europe or, you know, even the 3SI, 3Cs initiative. These countries were also condemning uh, the, the, what, what Hungary has been doing. Um, so I think that is bringing a more nuanced approach, should also open eyes for more nuanced approach to Central Europe. And, and we, we shouldn't generalize on Central Europe when it comes to um, you know, this, the potential divisive lines on culture. They're, they're not there. It, they go <laughs> across human hearts, but, uh, you know, through, throughout the societies, also in Central Europe. And we've seen also Pride Parade last weekend in Poland. Very, very popular. I mean, lots of people came mm -hmm. with support of Mayor Czaskowski. Yes, um, actually, a lot of... Um 
politicians participated in the parade and uh, openly expressed their support uh, towards LGBTQI community. At the same time, there was unfortunately um, some critical voices, from, for example, from uh, Minister Czarnek, the Minister of uh, Education, who um, spoke in really an offensive way about um, about the LGBTQI community, which also was met with a significant backlash from mm -hmm. uh, from the public opinion. Uh, and I th I think we can see we've been reporting on that earlier. We we see similar attempts also in Czechia ahead of the elections. We we see these kind of no tones of 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 such. Uh, cultural skepticism or uh, counterculture uh, in Slovakia. But overall, uh, times change, generations change. And also societies are slowly also uh, starting to, you know, appreciating the, you know, respect, the culture of respect and culture of freedom. Precisely. And we've also seen that play out in the games of the Euro Football Championship. Oh yes, and we've seen the results. Can illiberal states effectively fight against online activity of extremist groups? Well, read Asya Metodieva's new piece on Visegrad Insight to find out. Let's turn now to our special guest to evaluate Joe Biden's trip to Europe and the meetings he held here, including the meeting with Vladimir Putin. Stephen, it's fantastic to have you on our podcast. What are your first thoughts from the visit of Joe Biden to Europe? As a working journalist, my first thought is, thank God he's gone home. But I think it was a successful visit, frankly. I mean, I, I thought of it as Biden's uh, return rock tour of of Europe, right? I mean, and he sang all the old favorite songs about alliance and friendship and comity and we love you and everybody loved him back and the crowds were very supportive and it was all very, very nice and the words were nice. Now we'll see what actually happens. But I do think it was successful. Um, I think for the most part, Europeans are glad to have an American president who thinks of them as friends and not foes, economic foes, as Trump said, who thinks of them as allies and not competitors, who wants to work with them, even if they're sometimes reluctant to work with him, um, and who um, really believes, as a 78-year-old American, he really believes in the transatlantic alliance. He's a true believer, and he, he believes America's better for having European allies and friends, um, and Europe is better for having American alliance too. So this is a very nice different atmosphere. And, you know, Biden, I think, would, would say, oh, we're back as leaders and everybody's happy with that. And that's not entirely true, of course. I mean, everyone's back. They're glad to have him back, but they want a cooperative uh, American president who coordinates with them, um, though many Americans think Europe is too divided and self-interested to coordinate very well. I mean, that's part of the problem. And of course, I think the Biden people also tend, like a lot of people, to see Western Europe for all of Europe, 
and somehow don't always take into account the you know diversity of this 27 member alliance and and i think you know americans need 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 to remember that but in general i think it was very very good the nato meeting was as predictable as it could be uh, a nato ambassador said to me if you like trains that run on time, you will love this summit meeting, <laughs> which I thought was quite funny. If you like trains that crash, you will not like the summit meeting. And it did go very, very smoothly. Um, and the G7, I think, worked pretty well. And the EU-US summit actually provided some deliverables for Biden. I think, you know, Biden's real argument is, please work with me. I know you're worried about how long I'm going to be president and you may be worried about the American democracy. But the fact of the matter is, um, if you don't work with me, you'll get exactly what you fear, which is another Trump-like president next time. So there's a wariness, I think, on the part of, of um, Europeans. And then there's some Europeans like Macron, who just worries that this warm bath of America's back will mean Europe will go back to sleep and, and not take enough responsibility for itself. Um, but we'll see. I mean, the words are fine, but let's see what actually happens. And that's going to take a year or two to figure out. You mentioned uh, that... Uh... Biden's administration during this visit indeed emphasized uh, the Europe, the predictable, the, the stable Europe uh, that uh, predominantly belongs to the uh, original founding members of the European Union. And then Central Europe was missing from that picture. On the other hand, it seems that during that meeting, the so-called old European members didn't agree that much with Biden on the question of China, while China was one of the pillars of the of the effort of the diplomatic effort uh, Joe Biden brought to to Europe, and I think uh, that leaves a lot of speculation ahead for how this transatlantic uh, relationship will be shaped and whether there is a spot for Central Europeans to play a part uh, in the region where China has been very active uh, very recently and when you are, are, and where also US is very active with uh, the involvement in the NATO's eastern flank. What do you think of, of Central Europe in this perspective? Well, I think, you know, there are some people who mourn Donald Trump no longer being president, right? Some people like the Polish government invested heavily in Donald Trump, talked about having a fort named after Donald Trump. Um, but the fact is Trump was good for NATO and deterrence, despite hating it. Under Donald Trump, uh, NATO did put enhanced forward battalions um, who can fight in four kind of borderline countries, in, including Poland. Poland also has more American troops, um, which is reassuring. The Balts were reassured. And Biden did make a point of meeting with 
all four leaders during the NATO summit to reassure them about his talks with Putin, which I'm told made some in Poland very nervous. They were afraid there'd be some reset done at the expense of of um, Central Europe. I don't think that happened. Um, it's also true that Biden talking to Putin was reassuring to the Germans, especially. And there are a lot of Western Europeans who actually believe in the dual track strategy, if even if it isn't working, which is deterrence and defense on one hand and dialogue on the other hand. You can only have dialogue with someone who wants to talk to you, but to make the effort is fine. Now, China is complicated. I don't think the Americans want that much from the Europeans on China. I think what they want is the Europeans to take more responsibility for their own neighborhood, including North Africa, so the Americans can concentrate on China. I mean, NATO isn't a military alliance aimed at China. Emmanuel Macron is absolutely right about that. And if you are in Poland, you're a lot less worried about Beijing than you are about Dnipro or or Moscow, right? It's it's just kind of a, a given. So what the Americans do want is a more coordinated economic positioning toward China, which is about trade rules. It's about WTO reform. It's about um, solving EU-US problems on tariffs like Airbus and Boeing. It's about screening investments from China and also investments into China to make sure they don't damage Western security. Um, And it's about a common understanding, which I think is shared actually, uh, that China is a systemic rival and it has its ambitions. Um, And as the West inevitably shrinks compared to Asia, I'd say all of Asia, in terms of population, in terms of economic wealth, it's more important that, you know, democracies, so-called, some of us aren't great democracies, but we're still democracies, hang together um, in the face of this very advanced technological authoritarianism. Now, China isn't the Soviet Union. I mean, it's not ideologically revolutionary. It's not trying to spread its ideology. It doesn't want to have the working class in Italy seize power. I mean, it's nothing like that. But it it does want to be the most powerful country in the world and has said so. And we have allies. The United States has important allies. And obviously, some European countries individually do too, in Asia, Southeast Asia, uh, Vietnam, Thailand, Malaysia, the Philippines, uh, Japan, South Korea. I mean, we have defense arrangements with them. So it's really important. Um, but I don't think the Americans really expect the Europeans to you know, help militarily, particularly against China. They just want people to be aware of China's ambitions and to protect themselves in terms of 5G, in terms of artificial intelligence, in terms of uh, Chinese purchasing of important infrastructure that could get in the way of war fighting, for, for instance, ports and, and so on. Um, I think it's really more about that. So while the United States may view China as a peer rival, it doesn't expect Europe to. 
It just wants to have an ally, not a co-pilot. Do you think uh, that is uh, that is a new approach of the administration, not to engage with countries which have uh, or scale down the engagement, diplomatic engagement with countries that are largely reported to be uh, to be backsliding in terms of democracy, like Poland and Hungary, or is it something else? I don't think they're that clever. I don't think they've thought it through very, very much. I mean, as I say, I think to some degree, they just think of NATO as NATO and Europe as Europe, and they're not making big distinctions. Partly, they don't have ambassadors in these places. You, you know, they talk about human rights much more than the Trump people did. They talk about democracy much more. But I don't think this has yet turned into any policy Um, and I don't think they're trying to push Central Europe away or ignore Central Europe. Um, I just don't think they've thought very much about why it might be different. I mean, there are issues, but I think in general, the Americans regard these as issues for the European Union to deal with rather than, rather than the United States. I mean, particularly, let's say, with Poland-American relations with Poland go way back and they're very strong and, and there are lots of ties of, of um, friendship and generations and immigration and so on and so on. And I don't think that's harmed, particularly now, do the Biden people like peace, you know, law and justice? Probably not that much. Are they worried about, you know, justice? Are, are they worried about rule of law? Sure. Um, are they going to do anything about it? I doubt it. Are, are they planning to do something about it? I don't think they've thought it through that far. I think they really are relying more on Brussels to deal with it. It's not an American problem. We have other problems. And also, it is fair to say it's something Putin is very good at. We call whataboutism. Um, you know, there are problems with the American democracy, too. I mean, we've had, a, we have a presidential, a former president who doesn't believe he lost the election. Now, maybe he does in his heart of hearts know he loses the election, but he's undermining belief in democracy and the fairness of democracy among many people in America, uh, which is very upsetting. January 6th, the attack on the Capitol is very upsetting. So I think the Biden people are smart enough to realize they can't really preach too much. They can't take too high a moral position. So my guess is this notion of the alliance of for democracy isn't going to go very far. Um, but um, in general, they do want to support, you know, democratic countries. And, you know, I hope they will work with Poland and work with Hungary. I mean, they certainly want to keep faith with the opposition. They will certainly, as in Belarus, want to keep faith with protesters. Uh, they believe in um, human rights. Um, and they are, in Biden's terms, they think they have a generational challenge, which is the challenge of a very sophisticated technological autocracy um, and they want to prove that democracies as however messy 
function for their citizens. Um, so this is, I think, the overriding interest. Mm -hmm. And in that light, uh, I think it's important to reflect upon Biden-Putin summit, uh, the meeting that took place that many in Central Europe feared would bring a reset. And as you just mentioned a couple of minutes earlier, it wasn't a reset. Um, it, it's, I think it's worth to underline, especially to our listeners in Poland, but maybe in other countries of the region a little bit more uh, to the north, neighboring with, with Russia, that uh, it was a fairly... Uh, fairly good meeting from the point of view of security. This uh, message on stability um, seemed to hold up for me. Uh, and there was also mention of the of the red lines. Uh, I wonder what do you make out of it? How much of this approach is new in your um, in your uh, reporting and, and reflecting on, on, on the US administration? Well, Biden's a very experienced guy, right? He's been around the track, as we say. Um, he's not easily impressed or over-impressed. Um, I personally thought it was a good idea to talk to the head of one of the world's great nuclear powers. Um, we have serious arms control to do. The only thing left is a five-year extension of New START, which cannot be extended again. So there's no agreement on intermediate missiles. There's no agreement on no first use. There's no agreement on anything else. There's no open skies agreement. So it's a more dangerous world, I think, and Europe is more vulnerable than it was. Um, and, and I think a lot of people in Europe don't really understand. The Germans don't seem to understand that. I mean, the Russians could take Berlin out with a missile easily from from um, from Kaliningrad, even a short-range missile, um, and the Americans have nothing except sub-based. Anyway, I don't want to get into the intricacies of missiles, but the fact is, I think it's a more dangerous situation than many do. So I'm very glad that they will have working groups to at least begin to talk about arms control and strategic stability. I mean, Biden just wants to make it very clear to the Russians that um, they need to stop screwing around, um, particularly with democratic politics. Now, he can speak more for American politics, but there's no question the Russians intervened in American politics on behalf of Donald Trump, against Hillary Clinton, against Joe Biden. Um, and I think he made it very clear that, that if that happens again, there will be serious consequences. Um, he had this interesting threat, which he used just as an example, but it sounded to me like a threat, like nice energy pipelines you have, pity if something should happen to them, right? And I think Putin took that very seriously. I thought it was very interesting that he had his military people in the meeting, which is pretty unusual. Um, and um, I think Putin took it pretty seriously. So 
I don't think we gave away anything. I don't think Biden gave away anything. I think Biden just tried to show Putin, look, I'm a serious person. I've been very careful so far not to overreact to the stupid things you've done, but don't do them again or just wait and see. So I, I came away, you know, I wasn't in the meeting, but uh, I came away feeling that um, some, some new, I don't know, standards for the relationship at least were discussed. There were some new talking groups that matter. Uh, I think uh, Putin will also understand that, you know, Biden's willingness to let Nord Stream 2 go ahead so far is, is, a, is a kind of gesture, but it's also conditional. It can be changed. Um, so it didn't bother me very much. I think we overhyped it generally. I mean, the press will always overhype a U.S.-Russian summit meeting. And, you know, we like to think of Putin as some creature from, from the dark side of Pluto or something, you know, some incredibly intelligent strategist who has his hands on everything, which, of course, is completely untrue. Um, and, um, you know, Russia is a smaller country, a more vulnerable country. And I think, you know, when we talk about Russia and China, part of NATO's worry is, you, you know, Chinese military exercising with the Russian military. Um, but if I were Moscow, I'd be very worried about Beijing myself, because if, if Xi Jinping thinks the West is declining, he knows Russia's declining. And so this is, you know, this isn't the equal brotherhood. I mean, Russia would be the Mali Brati in, in this relationship. So, you know, Putin is aware of this. Um, so in general, I thought it was fine. I'm glad it didn't go on longer. Um, nobody pretended to love one another because there is no love there. Um, but I think, you know, what one wants at least, kind of as Biden said, he said, well, now let's see what they do. Last, uh, perhaps last uh, question, uh, Stephen, to, you know, reading back the, the ambassador, the, the diplomatic um, message, um, is it, isn't it unusual not to have too many ambassadors nominated to Europe by, by, that, uh, by that time? Of course, this is COVID, this is pandemic, but uh, only Julie Smith of, of very notable uh, positions in Europe have been announced only uh, on the 15th, I believe, of, of, of June as a next uh, EU, uh, sorry, NATO ambassador, uh, US ambassador to NATO. I do think it's unusual. It's been very slow. I'm not sure why, by the way. I've asked people because I have people that I know are waiting to find out, you know, what, who've kind of been talked to, but until there's a formal nomination, you never know. Um, for example, a former ambassador to NATO under Obama, Evo Dalder, said to me he was in place in May, right? And here it is, June 21st, at least Julie Ann Smith has been nominated now, but she's not been confirmed yet. So she's not in place. It'd be another, who knows, month or so. Um, part of it is the incredibly intricate security screening people go through. Friends of mine have said, you know, they get asked who were their lovers in college and, and all kinds of 
you know, very complicated, difficult questions from the past. Um, so this is intricate. And also Biden's very much aware he has a Senate that is split um, half and half. Now, they generally don't get too wrapped up in ambassadorial issues. But already it's one of the reasons why people like Susan Rice were put into jobs that did not need Senate confirmation um, because it wasn't clear that she would get that um, approval. So um, the other thing I've heard is Biden is much more conscious than previous presidents, partly because of the way the world has moved, about diversity of nominations, about, you know, more women, but also more Blacks, Asians, Hispanics. And a lot of the people that we kind of expect to get these jobs are white men. So I think what he didn't want to do was have a big list of white guys, aging white guys, um, to be criticized immediately. So I think in part that's also held up the process. That was Steven Erlanger, New York Times, and Marysia Czupka, Wojciech Przybylski, Visegrad Insight.